Georgie? The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to Direct to Nowhere, the section of the Road to Nowhere podcast in which I invite a guest on to discuss three movies from one of their favourite directors. I'm your host Andy, I'm delighted to be joined by lecturer, screenwriter, writer for the likes of Total Film and the host and editor of Moving Pictures Film Club podcast, Tim Coleman. Hi Tim, how are you doing? I'm good man, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, considering um, work day is just the usual yep, yep. fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's one of those, isn't it? Like, yeah, we're kind of, we were just saying uh, before we hit record, uh, kind of juggling work and juggling family life. It's an, it's an ever, ever evolving circus, right? Trying to keep all those balls in the air. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I've, uh, I've also, the, the, in the kind of 24 hours of this recording, I've got, this, will be my, this is the second of three that I'm doing in the mm. next kind of 24 hours, so... Just getting notes and making sure I've not missed anything out, and then work, and then the dog is hiding somewhere. He's taking the huff because he's not been out a walk yet. So yeah, yeah, all the no, good things. It's all good, man. Well, thanks very much for coming on. We'll get on to your director and who we're going to talk about uh, a wee bit later. Um, just for the folk that are listening, uh, if you could just give a wee kind of explanation about what you're doing and your podcast and things like that as well, and your writing. Yeah, thanks, Ben. So I'm a, a lecturer in my day job, um, but my side hustle is I'm also a film journalist and podcaster. So I, as you said, I write for uh, places like Total Film, Jump Cut Online, Second Sight Films. Um, and I also kind of host a website, movingpicturesfilmclub.com, where me and a bunch of other writers will like do festival reviews and interviews and that kind of thing. And back in January, we took the kind of plunge to join the podcasting community as well. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Moving Pictures has been going now for seven months, where we do like a, a monthly episode with a few bonus episodes here and there. Yeah. Um, yeah, looking at uh, a beloved genre classic, and then we kind of get into like the deep dive analysis of the film, but also like the context around it. So we've been doing things like the video nasties and the, you know, the Evil Dead and Sensor, um, right through to our last episode, which is came out a couple of weeks ago on the history of J horror and Hideo Nakata's Ring. So mm. yeah, it's been a lot, a lot of fun, like a real steep learning curve, but like it's just just been fab getting to talk to people who are really smart and passionate and just getting to like listen to them you know wax mm. lyrical about the films that mean so much to them yeah it's excellent yeah yeah the pod like i think you'd also had like a kind of stephen king uh theme throughout a lot of the episodes yeah. as well which is i'm a huge mark for anything stephen king so that Amazing. was brilliant to listen to oh thanks I, man yeah so i'm still enjoying it yeah definitely i think like i look back on my first podcast episode and was like let's just say the learning curve was very steep <laughs> it's like wow like suddenly newfound respect for all of my my podcast heroes and I was like, wow, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes with the editing and everything but like yeah i'm, I'm loving it and uh yeah I'm, it's it's just just been a lot of fun getting to uh have that that um outlet for having those conversations you know i, I think like probably a lot of people 
over the last few years when we were all in lockdown and whatever, you know, we all probably found a lot of comfort in films. But I, I realized that one of the things I missed the most was actually just, of course, people and, and spending yeah. time with people. And so mm-hmm. it's great having you know, the podcast, which kind of is both of those things. It's spending time with cool people talking about the stuff which we all love. And for me, like that's, you know, that's like life, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Hey, same reason why I kind of started up with this as well. Like it was mainly horror um, that I was going to lean towards because my wife just doesn't do horror. Mm-hmm. And so during lockdown, I had no one to talk about it with. I mean, I was still in work. I was a yeah. classed as a, a key worker, but, um, that kind of element of people, I think especially in the horror community, once you get into the the conversation about whatever movie it is, even if it's maybe not a popular one, or there's always someone there that will have that passion for it, that will have the the kind of drive and the enthusiasm that you can just bounce off of, and it's always great to get kind of involved in that type of chat. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like every now and again, I think when you see a film, which just light something inside of you like i i got to watch uh what josiah saw this week which is a new film out on shutter today mm-hmm. um as at the minute it's my film of the year i just absolutely loved mm-hmm. it and i i just love it when you you encounter those films and for me it is normally horror films which just spark something deep inside you where you feel like really alive there's a real vitality to it and so yeah mm-hmm. getting to share that with other people is just the dream yeah i saw that today actually uh, your review up for that and Got Shudder as well, so it's been added onto my list for... Oh, good stuff. Let me know what you think. When, yeah, <laughs> whenever my wife's in bed. <laughs> yeah. Because, it could, and then we've also got Prey coming out tomorrow, which seems to be getting mm. massive hype as well. I'm so excited for that. Oh, well. man. I know people are saying it's the best Predator movie after the first one. And mm. uh, I know that's not necessarily a high bar because <laughs> they've been a quite a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, but I, mean, I, I personally still really love Predator 2. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the prospect of something which is at that level or higher is got me pretty hyped. So I can't mm. wait to see that. It seems like it's going to go back to kind of more basics of what made Predator great. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Mm. Um, that's when my wife is getting forced to watch because it's my birthday and we, I picked the movie. So she's going to watch that. Amazing. <laughs> happy birthday happy. to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so what I like to ask, just kind of to start off with, do you have uh, an early, what's your sort of earliest movie or cinema moment? It could be from at home it could be in the cinema it could be just sitting watching Mm. on the telly anything like that yeah no it's a a really good question um i think the earliest memory i have of actually being in a cinema is just like super fuzzy because i i don't know how old i was but i was pretty pretty young and Mm. i i think it's bambi um and like we were visiting some family in london and i i just i don't really remember much about it beyond like this feeling of being a little bit intimidated by the size of the screen and being so short I, I could barely see over the seats in front of me and just being almost a little bit frightened by the experience but clearly it's made a big enough impression that i can still remember it now like mm-hmm. i don't know 36 37 years later um the probably the first film which made like an impression which i can still remember today will be some of the stuff i saw in the late 80s or early 90s which my i saw with my family so it would be things like going to see indiana jones the last crusade at the pictures and mm-hmm. being so frightened of that bit at the end where donovan turns to dust i had to close my eyes or <laughs> uh my parents were still, like super liberal so they showed me things like james cameron's aliens about that time as well and that mm-hmm. really frightened me um but like though both of those films now are like 
all-time favorites for me and i think those were quite formative in terms of shaping my love of horror like the stuff which i found almost too scary is now you know complete comfort um Mm -hmm. watches or at the very least been very formative in in you know creating my tastes and you know calibrating my my personal appetite for horror yeah my um th- my kind of early cinema memory is batman forever for some reason okay cool. so <laughs> i've not watched it anytime recently but i remember specifically seeing that in the cinema i think my uncle took me actually. yeah yeah um i've not watched it in a while it might be terrible i can't remember <laughs> yeah i mean people don't like that film but like i've i've got fairly positive memories of watching it yeah mm. at the cinema again like and you know I mean, sometimes those films aren't always the best, objectively speaking, but like, you know, we sometimes just see them at a time when they just really speak to us, right? I think the first 15 certificate I ever saw at the pictures, uh, and I was too young to do it, but I kind of, you know, got in anyway. It was um, Sly Stallone's Judge Dredd, which I'm not oh, going to go and bat for as a, as a good film, you know, objectively speaking, but I've got like an affection for it because of, you know, being a young teenager and go with my friends for the first time and feeling like a, a you know look how grown up i am and all that yeah. so yeah you know the, these films have meaning that we ascribe to them don't they mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah so again similar experience was seeing uh, my first 18 was gangs of new york oh amazing um, in the cinema so i would think that was maybe 2001 that came out i can't remember exactly yeah so i'd have been 14 and remember sneaking into that and then sitting in the front and just hoping that no one thought as if you're gonna get lifted or something yeah, and carted yeah. out the police. But yeah, it's things like that, as you're saying. Like I, I do actually really love gangs in New York mm. anyway, but um it's just a uh, good memories that way. Um do you have a favourite moment from again, cinema movies that you can always go back to? Um, whether yeah. it's a scene or even just a I mean that's a really good question. I can tell you probably one of my favourite moments that happened in a cinema, and it, this is probably mm-hmm. a bit of a cliched answer, but um, it was going to see Avengers: Infinity War on like the opening weekend. Yeah, and like I know that's a super popular film, so it's probably not the coolest answer I could give, but it's a, it's an honest one that I was just so hyped to see it, and I you know that that theater was packed out, and then mm-hmm. the way that film ends with its proper Empire Strikes Back style ending. It was just magic being in a room full of like, I don't know, 400 people who were laughing at the right places, gasping at the right places, cheering at the right places. And then it got to the ending and it was just like complete silence. Mm. Um, And for me, that was just magic because, you know, I think we all get used to like bad cinema etiquette where people are checking their phones or they're chatting through films. And it was just something so special and magical to be in a room of several hundred people who are in the same emotional space as you are watching a film. So that was that was a big one for me. Hmm. The kind of deathly silence of everyone at the end of it as well was kind of similar again. Like I remember seeing that we, my wife was heavily pregnant mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. so we had booked out uh, booked the VIP in the Sunny World. I don't know if you yeah, get yeah. that down there as well. Um, where you pay kind of thirty quid or whatever it is, I think, um, to get a buffet beforehand, but you get the extra padded seats and everything. Nice. But yeah, everyone just I remember going into it and speaking with Shan, my wife, about they'll never do the snap. They'll not do that. They can't do that now. It's like, yeah. it's just like, there's kids in here, they can't, can't do that. And just having seen that at it, seen the, the way they carried it out and how well they done it as well, mm-hmm. just blown away. And then you come out and go, 
worrying, having worried about who was going to die in Infinity War, you came out and go, well, technically, I suppose you should really be worried about the part two because <laughs> you know that's coming. So, yeah, aye, it, was some, it was some experience. I don't think I've ever... Uh, that in Endgame, maybe um, No Way Home mm. last year mm-hmm. is in terms of similar cinema experiences, like the crowd and my cinema clapped and everything, which I don't, don't particularly like. But yeah. um, it's it's... Not often you get that that kind of yeah. kind of visceral sort of. I think yeah, particularly with, with temple movies or blockbuster movies that really connect not just with you as an individual where you're, you're like, oh yeah, I'm watching something which is an incredible piece of art, but it kind of connects socially, like mm. with with the wider temp, you know, the wider cultural temperature that we're all experiencing. Like yeah. I felt similarly with like Inception uh, back in mm. like 2010. I I was one of I'm sorry Andy. I was one of those guys who clapped in Inception. Like oh, no. just because I was like <laughs> uh, I was just blown away by like like how have they made like a mainstream film which is that complex and demands that much from the audience? And I just you know just loved Christopher Nolan for that for that that sheer audacity to kind of take that film where he took it. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, th- those moments don't come around very often where you have that kind of shared communal experience. But when they do, I think it's you know, there's nothing like it. Hmm. You a big fan of Nolan? Yeah, yeah, I am. I feel like all of his films are good to great. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe I, I would have said a little while ago he's probably my favorite director. But okay. I think for the some of the latter films, I've kind of maybe not fallen out of love with but found them a little bit less emotionally engaging and that's one of the objections that people often level at uh he's a bit of a cold director um Mm. i don't think that's true across all of his films but certainly from um uh for tenant i found that um Mm. and i wasn't the biggest fan of um, I'm kind of like hedging my bets a little bit here because like, I, I really <laughs> admire them on a technical level like things like Interstellar yeah. and uh, Dunkirk I really loved at the time but they're not films mm-hmm. I kind of go back to a lot for like yeah. an emotional connection I kind of admire them more um, for me his best work is probably Inception Batman Begins of course The Dark Knight Memento Mm-hmm. Uh, even following, I think is is fantastic. Um, but yeah, yeah. He, I would say he used to be my favourite director until he was replaced by the guy we're going to talk about today. Cool, right? That's a nice way just to segue into there. So cheers for that. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so the director you've chosen uh, to discuss this week is Park Chan Wook. Mm. What is your relationship with his movies? Then, as you're saying, it's kind of recently that he's become your probably a favorite director yeah yeah i mean so i f- came into the work of park chanuk uh through old boy uh perhaps mm-hmm. predictably that like, old boy is probably one of if not his most famous film uh from 2003 mm-hmm. and i was emotionally destroyed by it yeah. <laughs> it is a it's a bleak quite nasty film in how it how it lands um and so i kind of came away from thinking wow that was great i don't know if i'm ever going to watch it again i feel quite disturbed and like it left it like a bit of a nasty taste in my mouth and then like a, a few years ago um i was invited onto uh, another podcast to do some asian extreme titles and so we were looking at takashi Mike's audition and park chanuk's old boy for the evolution horror podcast and i kind of mm-hmm. Um, I like to do my prep for these things. So I decided I was going to watch pretty much everything that Park Chanuk had done that 
Okay. Um, that was available in the UK, which which is most of it nowadays. Um, so yeah. I kind of went through his whole filmography over about like four or five months, and I was like, "Wow, this is like all killer, no filler." Like there are loads and loads of five star masterpieces in this this guy's filmography, um, and I just kind of just thought his hit rate was unlike anyone else. Like there are there are there are filmmakers who have an incredible run. Um, mm-hmm. and but they usually I've got some duds mixed in there, like of course Spielberg has got some all timers in there, so is Scorsese, or and Rob Reiner's a big one where he's got you know through like the 80s into the early 90s, where mm-hmm. everything from a few good men to misery to, to spinal tap, you know, some real all timers there. Um, but I was looking at Park John Hook's filmography, and I was like, I, I have not yet seen a bad film by this guy, and so I kind of was like, Yeah, I think in terms of both his aesthetic uh, aesthetic sensibility and his style, but also his thematic concerns. Um, I just connected with it really deeply and just fell in love with him. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned the, the kind of Asia Extreme, the round about the time of Old Boy. It was Tartan Asia Extreme mm-hmm. uh, DVDs, which I had a lot of as well. I actually um, avoided Old Boy because it looked as if it'd be too much for me at that era at that time in my life but it was things like um you mentioned Ringu uh earlier on and um uh, Dark Water was another Mm. one and Battle Royale Mm. and it used to be quite a I'd never seen that type of cinema before like it was really interesting and um the style of filmmaking the style of acting is also quite different I think people see acting as just this kind of broad generic kind of spectrum at times but the from kind of east to west, it verges all over the place in terms of what is good acting, what is classed as, mm. uh, I kind of maybe think the best way to put it for someone that's not watched a lot of Asian cinema, maybe sometimes watching it can be a wee bit jarring with the mm. acting styles at times. Um, but the Tartan, yeah, Tartan's Extreme was just a big thing, uh, to kind of introduce people to it and then. But also started to get like remakes of Asian cinema, kind of through the the knots as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't discuss the remake of Old Boy with Spike Lee. I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. I watched half of it and then gave up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I still think that remake is all right. Like, I think okay. it. I don't hate it. Like, I know some people really do hate it, and I think it's doing enough mm-hmm. stuff that's still interesting. I just think it's not the original and like few things are and i think like what you said there in terms of it exposing western audiences to like a very different style of filmmaking you know uh, i think is absolutely right i remember seeing hideo nakata's ring um it probably well, yeah, whenever it did come out on Titan extreme dvd probably yeah. 2000 because it took a couple of years to get to the uk legally um and just being like i have not seen anything like this before and then seeing stuff like battle royale as you say like soon after that um and just being like, yeah, th- these films are just unlike anything that I've been conditioned to expect from cinema. And it's invigorating. I mean, Korean cinema in particular, of course, Park Chan-wook is a Korean di- mm. uh, director. Like, Korean cinema just cares not for generic restrictions and classifications, and it will change on a dime. So you might think you're watching one thing, and it will just flip into something else. And it's, <laughs> if you can vibe into that, if you, if you tune into that, it's absolutely exhilarating. Um, and yeah, it just kind of really opens the audience up to having an open mind about like what what cinema can do what plots can do what the films are going to speak to you about and it's mm-hmm. unlike anything else really yeah there's a level i think especially then around about that time of 
the brutality and mm. the violence in some of the Asian cinema wasn't what we're really used to over here. This was an era coming out of the 90s of slashers and glitzy, kind of shiny horror movies mm. that we'd seen. Mm. And there was a, I don't mean coldness, but I am bleakness, like you've said, and yeah, brutality that was, so this is we're talking before Saw era and things like yeah. that. We never really got that here before. Yeah, no, you're, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like maybe in the early 90s, there was a bit more of that when we had Tarantino kind of exploding onto the scene with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and those films were kind of really harking back to either like 70s exploitation movies or like wholesale porting stuff over from Eastern cinema. Like, you know, Reservoir Dogs, of course, is famously very influenced by Ringo Lamb's City on Fire. But by the late, late 90s, we were in the post-Scream slasher boom, which was very polished, very slick, like lots of beautiful uh, people in their teens and 20s, you know, like, mm. um, and it's kind of fairly bloodless or if, if not completely bloodless, like fairly, you know, s- safe um and yeah i mean i feel like naughty cinema definitely shifted over to a, a more brutal aesthetic like particularly post 9 11 uh, american mm. cinema goes in that direction that's when we start getting uh, from probably around 2004 interestingly we have the double bill of saw and the passion of the christ by um mel gibson but i think for those two films together kind of ushered in the torture porn era um mm. but yeah i mean asian films were doing it three four years before that with stuff like battle royale with stuff like old boy where the violence is crunchy and explicit and sticky (laughs) but also darkly funny and yeah just really like like that i mean we're going to get to it in in due course but the hammer corridor sequence in old boy (laughs) is very violent but very funny as well you know and and uh yeah it it was a a shot in the arm i think for audiences who weren't acclimatized Mm -hmm. to seeing that stuff yeah it's, it's certainly one of the things that I've found doing this part of the podcast is getting introduced to all these different directors. Like I was aware of Park Chan-wook and um, I've just recorded a, a, an episode recently discussing the Human Centipede trilogy, oh, which is yeah, something yeah. I never thought I would watch. <laughs> um, but so going on to the, the movies of, of Park, um, we'll start off with... JSA or Joint Security Area. Yeah, this is a very special case. Our job is to find out not who, but why. The perpetrator is already in custody. We even have his confession. Your ultimate goal is to remain perfectly neutral and not to provoke either the South or the North. Sundane 
어쩔 수 없지 않겠어. 결국 우린 저기야. Which is a kind of mystery crime thriller set in the border between North and South Korea. Yeah. And I felt it was quite a... It almost felt like an Eastern representation of maybe something like A Few Good Men, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Um, how do you kind of interpret that? Do you think it is that way of making the movie or is that just how it's been kind of naturally came out? Yeah, no, it's that's a really interesting comparison point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what one of the things I find fascinating about um, JSA is it kind of enters into a space which is kind of quite alien to again like western audiences at this time in our lives because the thing it kind of reminds me of is those kind of cold war narratives that you might get about people trying to get across the berlin wall or like you know spies from the soviet union defecting and that kind of thing but um you know at the time that jsa came out certainly you know in the in the decades a couple of decades since that's not necessarily been as much of the western you know, lexicon of, of cinema that we've kind of been used to. Um, so as you say, yeah, the plot is that there's a dead body that turns up in the no man's land, essentially between North and South Korea. And the film is a procedural court inquiry to figure out what happened. And it's kind of interspliced with these flashbacks. Um, and are, are we doing spoilers or are we kind of just kind of... Yeah, cool. And oh, spoilers. That's yeah. it, spoiler away. Um, so yeah. if you've not seen GSA please do go watch it. It's an absolute banger. Uh, but yeah, what kind of comes out is that the uh, guards in both North and South guard posts have falteringly um, formed a friendship. And it's what emerges is this incredibly poignant story about kind of two people, or not even two people, two, two groups of people who mm-hmm. have been divided by these kind of macro political forces reconnecting with the humanity of their adversary they're both very used to kind of dehumanizing the other side and and they play cards together and they drink together and they joke together and they play games together and it's about then the tragedy of what leads up to that dead body turning Mm up in the no man's land and it's just deeply humane and deeply empathetic um and just Mm -hmm. deeply powerful you know as well as being an absolutely gripping procedural mystery Mm -hmm. that was the one part i wasn't actually expecting from it is it's the I was expecting just like a kind of by the numbers mm. political thriller type thing, political mystery, but the kind of friendship of the the two northern and two southern um, uh, soldiers, mm. if you will, um, was a really yeah, as you're saying, really touching moment of it, showing that it's not about obviously there's where you want to go into the political nature of North Korea and the maybe brainwashed side of that, yeah. it doesn't, it, it never really paints them out to be the bad guys once you start to get to know them, once you see what's happening. Because that's what I was, I was just a, with the way we went with the news coverage over here, it's South Korea is good, North Korea is bad. Yeah, yeah. And having that, taken away and had seen through that seen through the eastern lens of well it's a country that's been divided horrifically and they have similar maybe ideologies isn't the right word but they still have a connection mm. and that connection is what really pulls the film together as it's going on yeah yeah 100 percent. it's deeply elegiac really for like what has become of korea 
you know, mm-hmm. um, as a divided nation into two nations, essentially. Uh, but I think yeah. it really is as well, like that empathic connection that it invites the audience into, that invites the audience to not see, for example, the North Korean guards as being monstrous in any way. They're, they're just they're seen first and foremost as people within a monstrous system. Um, mm-hmm. That, to me, is like a really key thematic thread that you see throughout a lot of Park Chan-wook's filmography, which is the invitation to empathy with those who you would never suspect you would empathize with. Um, Mm. And for me, this is probably the main reason why I connect with him so much. And he's my favorite director is I feel like that, that empathic connection it establishes between audience and subject is incredibly provocative incredibly like moral as well like if we can use that kind of language i feel like Mm -hmm. in our in our rather coarse public discourse nowadays like i think empathy can be in short short supply where people are not seen as people often like they kind of get reduced down to like labels like uh the right versus the left or like the hicks versus the woke or whatever you know um that's very blunt and very like dehumanizing and what what pachanuk it takes us into is a space where you're not asked to agree with the politics of anybody but you're just asked to see these people as people um and i love that about his films i think it's invigorating so yeah looking at the kind of political themes of the movie um and the north and south divide we've got a, a main character who's seen as the neutral because she's basically she's a Korean descendant, but born in Geneva, mm. I think. I think she was born in Geneva. Um, so she gets brought in because she can speak uh, Korean. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Swiss Army Major Sophie Jean. She never really seems to have any preemptions of what both sides are guilty of or not guilty of. Mm. Does it give that good balance of portraying them both as potentially in the wrong, potentially in the right, in terms of the North and South divide, do you feel? Yeah, I mean, so she's brought in, as you say, as a kind of impartial party um, who is is essentially there to deduce what happened because, of course, there's quite a lot of political bias from the North and the South to paint things in a particular way. Um, I mean, she, she she's great. She's like a, a great audience surrogate in that way um, to kind of walk us through that that process. Um, great performance from Lee Young-A, um, who also then would work with uh, Pacha Nook in Lady Vengeance a few years later as well. Um, yeah, and, and she's, she's like a great protagonist for that kind of question, because what, what she uncovers is a constant level of spin from both sides to try and to try and handle the situation, and also the kind of the concern that this is a, a, a lit fuse, essentially, politically, that if it is allowed to burn out of control this could blow up into something um which is got like larger implications politically because you know somebody has died and who is to blame and that that's gonna that's the kind of thing that could start a war so yeah i mean she's she's great but what, what i love about it um is then how we get to know like the soldiers from the different sides so uh, for me like the stand-up performances from uh song kang ho who uh, plays one of the North Korean soldiers, um, and people might recognize him from films like uh, Parasite, for example. He was the lead character in that film, um, and he is for me like the the emotional heart of this film. Like a, a guy who works within the brutalist system of North Korea, but has this kind of really repressed sensitivity as well, which he allows sometimes to come out, and sometimes he has to repress it again to try and just survive. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, excellent performances all round. Yeah, it's um, 
when it comes to the end of the movie, um, it turns out basically, yeah, the four of them they become friends. They said they're sitting drinking, playing cards, and, and such. And uh, a general kind of stumbles upon them, which is what leads to the tension, which leads to the the two deaths. Um, and it shows uh, his. You're seeing kind of sparks of him. Um, like a point he's uh, what's the word? It doesn't. It's kind of saluting North Korea mm. to kind of shout over the South Koreans, but it's shown his motives at the end for why he's kind of had certain elements of his character. Like if he's come across with a lot of bravado or a lot of um, faith in the kind of communist ideology of the North, yeah. but it's basically as trying to protect his friends yeah. is the reason for doing it. And it was really great that we. I, I didn't see. Again, as I said, the friendship wasn't something I expected to see in this movie, mm. and he just sells it exceptionally well because eventually yeah. he's the one that kind of makes the maybe not makes the big sacrifice because there's a lot of people that kind of die later on in it and commit suicide and everything yeah. because of uh, what's happened. But he certainly seems to take the take the brunt of sorting out the problem. Yeah, yeah, and for me, like that's a trope which I always gets me right in the feels like the person mm-hmm. i mean of course the people who will give their life for something is you know in many ways the supreme sacrifice but almost as poignant is the person who will continue to live whilst allowing themselves to take the blame in a way for mm-hmm. something which isn't really their fault um yeah and yeah for me like that it, it's just very moving because actually that is as equally an expression of love and affection to protect somebody, even if it means that you are made out to be a monster or you're made out to be uncaring or you're made out to be, you know, immoral or whatever. But yeah, he ultimately does it from a position of protecting the people he cares about. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible, incredible performance. And yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about him again probably as we go through because he turns up uh, in the next film as well. But like, I think Song yeah. Kang Ho is uh, a fantastic performer. Mm-hmm. Um. And speaking of the kind of mystery, did you have any inklings towards it while we were watching? Because I think they've done a good job of, uh, Park's done a, a great job and not really giving away yeah. anything. There's no subtle hints because it's seen as the spin from both sides. It's so difficult to kind of yeah. get to grips with before you find out. I mean, you're asking the wrong person, Andy, to be honest, because I am like <laughs> the worst about predicting mysteries. Like, you know, I, my wife is like super hot on like picking up what the twists are with films to the point that it's a little bit like you have we have a rule in our house that she's not allowed to say her predictions because it'll probably be right but i i'm like one of those guys who when i'm seeing a magic trick i don't want to know how it's done i just want to be amazed and so yeah i i don't remember on my first watch having any inclinations about what the what the big twist was but just being like you know gripped for the ride Mm. and do you think it leaves it kind of open it's almost like the who shot first part of Star Wars, um, where, again, two contradicting reports. Um, Sue Hyuk, is, it's written that he shot first, but he claimed it was his friend that shot first. Yeah. And it never it never really fully tied that up, did it? Unless I've missed something. I mean, like, it's having a little bit of ambiguity. Mm, I like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's... It's helpful because you you it leaves you kind of questioning a little bit about like well who who is telling the truth or is it's objective truth something that we can really reach for entirely so mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think it, it it gives it a bit bit more nuance a bit bit of a wrinkle mm-hmm. 
Aye. It definitely wasn't what I was expecting from it. Um, a great movie. I would recommend everyone to check it out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's definitely a lot different from the other two we're going to go on to. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think it's, I mean, we talked about Tartan Extreme. I think it, this was a Tartan Extreme title, as were the other two as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's also a lovely Arrow Blu-ray that's out at the moment. Um, and in their sales, well, I don't work for Arrow, so I can say this with a clean conscience, but uh, <laughs> there's an Arrow, uh, Camp Arrow sale at the minute, which... Um, I'll say this is it's historically ruined my bank balance every time it's come around, so I'm trying to not succumb to it too easily. But we'll see. Yeah, make that in a blocked list on your internet. You kind of go on it. I know. I feel like <laughs> there was a time in my life where I was like, I feel like I need in my paycheck to pay, you know, my national insurance, my tax, and Arrow video just to kind of like take it out at source because it'll just be easier. Yeah. Aye. Subscription. Um, so that was JSA or Joint Security Area. The next one we're going to go on to is part one of which is known now as the Vengeance Trilogy. Mm. Um, thematically, more so than that show kind of following on character-wise and things. And it is Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Give a kind of brief, brief synopsis of this, actually. Yeah, no worries. Um, so, um, essentially, we uh, join a recently laid-off factory worker who kidnaps his former boss's friend's daughter, hoping to then use the ransom money to pay for his sister's kidney transplant. Um, but you know, as with a lot of these kind of stories, um, a kidnapping does not go as planned, and a tragedy ensues. Um, and therefore a cycle of vengeance is set in motion which will affect all of the characters' lives. This is when it comes into that type of brutality I was talking about before. The violence in this is goes up a notch. Um, lots of knives and things, yeah. which is always horrible. <laughs> um, you're saying there like, it, it kind of starts a cycle. The plot seems to be everything happens almost accidentally like um again we can go into spoilers the the kidnapped we get all drowns accidentally which leads to there's kind of two vengeance stories happen at the same time the character of ryu and um the father played again as you're saying that was song kang ho wasn't it played the, the, the father um and it's it felt a bit like true romance to me where there is these accidental moments that kind of propel the plot forward and 
folk getting up to their knees and shit and not knowing how to get out of it really yeah yeah definitely definitely it's, it's got a real escalating sense of awfulness as the film goes on where you things are just getting more and more out of hand because um not in any way obviously just just to be really clear sanctioning the kidnapping of a child in order to for in any circumstances but you could say that it is portrayed reasonably as a understandable decision for people in incredible hardship where they're, they're not looking to harm her or, or anything but they're just like i need to get this operation for my loved one we're not going to hurt this girl we'll just we'll give her back straight away but i just need that extra money so a bad decision not sanctioning it but one that you could at least think Ooh, what would i do if the life of my loved one depended on it um and the fact that it does go horribly wrong that she drowns accidentally because they're not looking they're not supervising her properly while she's by a river it is an absolute sickening gut punch where you know not only that you're you're feeling upset this child has died but like ryu the um the main protagonist at the beginning you can see that he is devastated by this as well he can't believe what's happened um and i for me like this this kind of ties into what makes this film so special to me is it constantly as a film plays with your empathy and your sympathies like i mean the title itself is like sympathy for mr vengeance but the question about who has your sympathy at any one point is always changing uh where you may have begun sympathizing with ryu and his and his uh his quest to get that money for the operation but then of course you're sympathizing with the father of the the dead girl um and it just invites you to this really complicated emotional space where you end up sympathizing with everybody and feeling bad for everybody yeah it's interesting what you're saying there because one of the things i was going to ask is kind of morally do you feel like part points is towards anyone or is it again open to your own sort of interpretation like ryu is basically i think he's he's got money in the they've got money in the bank for the sister's uh transplant but they don't have a donor so he goes to uh, like a, an organ harvesting gang mm-hmm. and gets them to take his kidney pays for it and they say they'll get him a replacement but they never do so that's kind of his vengeance tale and then because tragically again five days later mm. The doctor tells him, well, by the way, we've got a donor. You just need to pay for it. But he's used that money to get his surgery done. And uh, the character, uh, um, Park Dong Jin, mm-hmm. whose daughter eventually gets kidnapped, he has, obviously, he's going on a, a revenge mission because his daughter's been, in his eyes, murdered, kidnapped and yeah, murdered yeah. Uh, because of the kind of status he holds in the, the he's laid off factory workers, one of which is Ryu and it is, it's just a whole, I think I, I said in my notes, it feels almost like a Shakespearean tragedy, the way everything's doomed from the off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't, I'm, to go to your question about does Director Park ask us to sympathise with any one person, I think I think he just presents like a really complicated situation and invites you to empathise and sympathise with everybody. Which, which again, it really problematizes the the normal trajectory of a revenge film. Like normally revenge films... Uh, are about generating catharsis by the violent retribution level against someone who has done something bad. And so, like, if we think about, like, you know, they're kind of quite divisive films, but things like I Spit on Your Grave, for example, which is like a really, you know, classic revenge film, it begins with a horrendous, well, several horrendous rape sequences. And then the last uh, act of the film is the violent retribution leveled against the rapist. And that that's fairly consistent with a lot of revenge movies. Um, the thing is with those films like they they never really normally ask you to 
identify with the the assailants of the attackers it's always like a bad person has done a bad thing and they're going to pay for it and that's where like the sense of relief and catharsis comes from it the thing about sympathy for mr vengeance is there are no bad people who are like 100 bad there's just people making bad choices and it's not that those choices are meaningless or don't in a way deserve justice it's just that you are asked to kind of understand and accept that they don't come necessarily from a place of psychopathic malice it's just people making bad choices um and for me like that feels like it's speaking a lot more truthfully to the way the world actually is like i'm i think there are of course sometimes people who are just like pretty much bad through and through but i, I don't really believe that anyone is 100% bad i feel always feel like everybody has got like at least a glimmer of of good in them and actually for a lot of people even people who do bad things like they they may in their own mind be doing them out of a, a, a position where it makes sense to them and so without yeah. excusing actions like it, like without for example excusing the kidnapping of a child in this film you you are still asked to kind of consider them as people not as monsters it's about humanizing mm-hmm. these these people and, I, and for me that, that's just really interesting because again it just invites the audience in to consider that it's it's a very easy and reductive way to think about the world as being good and bad, heroes versus monsters. And actually, what director Park does with this film is say, well, look, there are no good and bad heroes and monsters. There are just messy people making bad choices. And mm-hmm. I want you to feel for all of these characters. And uh, I mean, the, the result is absolutely devastating because, of course, they do extract vengeance on one another as they go through. Um, and there is no catharsis and there's no peace from from that vengeance. There's just more and more pain <laughs> that's yeah. layered upon it. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's funny how you're saying about the people making bad choices. It felt, again, maybe a wee bit similar to... Um, Takashi Miike's First Love, which okay. is two people again. Have you seen First Love? So I haven't. It's on my hit list of. I mean, Miike's got so many films, man. But yeah, that yeah. that one's on that one. I haven't seen, but yeah, I've, I've heard good things about it. Yeah, there's it, there's a, a a couple in a, a similar situation um, who have made these choices that then just spirals mm. and gets out of control and they're in above their heads. Very similar to that. That's a lot more comedic though, okay. than this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot more kind of Gonzo style than um, the kind of bleakness of this. But it's well worth checking out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, as you're saying with the the kind of revenge films or rape revenge films, which we see a lot of, you mentioned Spitting Your Grave. There's um, Last House on the Left. Um, one of my favourites from the past few years was the French movie Revenge. Yeah, yeah, which is each other, which was great. Yeah, it's fantastic. But it does give you a, a straightforward answer. You know who you've yeah. who you are um, uh, feeling for, uh, who you're following. But this just leaves everything so ambiguous, so up in the air. Yeah. Gives you the choice. And whatever choice you make, if you do make a choice, you're not going to feel good about it at the end. <laughs> so, yeah. Because essentially, Dong Jin tracks down Ryu and his girlfriend. His girlfriend, who is part of a an anarchist mm. terrorist group. Yeah. And she mentions when Dong Jin, when Dong Jin's kind of torturing her, trying to get uh, the whereabouts of his daughter mm. um, or why why they killed his daughter sorry um, and she says if you kill me my people will come and kill you and he, he can it's quite dismissive of it and then also there's a scene after the girlfriend's been killed the the police are just saying oh she was she's kind of just on her own doing this handing out these flyers yeah so you it, 
that kind of subtle wee point there it makes you think she's all chat and she's just yeah yeah she's trying uh, to get out of it a keyboard warrior almost type of thing yeah. but it comes to pass that he actually she was telling the truth I mean, he gets murdered at the end and it's horrific that is yeah it is one of the most downbeat but like poetically poignant endings because like yeah mm. the, the final scene then is um you have um Song Kang Ho, who's playing Dong Jin as the dad, he gets Ryu um, and he takes him back to the river where his daughter drowns and he slashes his Achilles tendon so he can't stand up in the river and he drowns, which in mm. itself is horrible, <laughs> you know, but like, yeah. like you can see he, in his mind, he's like, I'm going to make you suffer the way my daughter suffers. So there's like a kind of a logic to it. But mm. like Ryu, who's deaf mute as well, like is just begging as best as he can for his life and he just drowns slowly. Yeah, and Don Jim gets out of the river. So you're already, as an audience member, feeling pretty conflicted about that. Going like, "Oh man, like I, I did want you to get vengeance for your daughter, but that was horrible." And now I feel mm. really conflicted about what I believe about vengeance and justice. He sits down, he's having a cigarette, and then these these this gang comes up, and there's like a little time jump where they've just clearly killed him and chopped him up into bits and put him in bin bags. They've got like yeah. a pile of bin bags with his body in, mm. and it's just it's utterly brutal. But like. For me, like that's Director Park then stepping in way and going, okay, so you guys want vengeance. This is what it looks like. Vengeance mm-hmm. hurts everybody. Like, yeah. you know, a desire for justice is understandable and correct, but vengeance taken into our own hand is just bloodshed that begets bloodshed. And I want you guys to sit with the pain of and the uncomfortable atmosphere of that. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Hmm. Yeah, there's no kind of Liam Neeson taking happy ending where no. the good guy wins and gets away, the daughter gets saved sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it was fantastic, yeah, absolutely. I've loved all three of these movies. I'd seen, we'll come on to the last one in a wee second, um, but uh, Sympathy and GSA were first-time watches for me, and yeah, I'm definitely going to need to check out more parts, parts work. Yeah. Um, it's just so engaging, and again, stylist filmmaking you don't always see in our cinemas in western cinema which is the kind of the norm to for us to get when we, when we go to the pictures mm. go to the cinema sorry um definitely some more i need to check out um so yeah i think that'll wrap up for sympathy for mr vengeance uh-huh. um again another banger i think he said yeah so definitely check it out the last one is a, just a stone cold classic. Yes. And it is Old Boy.
Now, without we again we mentioned earlier on, um, Old Boy was one of the ones that I avoided because it looked too brutal for myself at yeah. the time when it first came out. Yeah. I, I regret waiting so long to have watched it. I had seen it before this rewatch. Um, it's a movie that's kind of permeated the culture already, even over here. I think I've, if you mention Old Boy, if you have a kind of passing interest in cinema, you certainly know of certain scenes or certain you've maybe even heard of certain plot points that happen yeah. throughout um just give us a, a kind of what was your introduction to old boy and your sort of relationship as the years have went on yeah so i mean as i, I mentioned earlier i guess this was the first one of director park's movies which i saw uh, mm-hmm. i remember i was just home alone one day i think like my my wife and kids were out um visiting like her parents and i was just doing some decorating like waiting for the coat of paint to dry and i thought i'm gonna yeah pop pop on old boy and i watched it and i remember when the ending came out i felt like i'd just been hit by a train (laughs) yeah because it has got one of the most disturbing endings probably of any film ever um Mm. and yeah it just it just really wrecked me and i think going back to it years later um and seeing it in the context of director parks other films and in particular like the vengeance trilogy like we mentioned like the sympathy for mr vengeance old boy and there's also lady vengeance which was made afterwards and seeing those films as a kind of a thematic body of work um for me it, it just makes complete sense like it is a film again about inviting you in to have empathy and sympathy with characters who on paper you you wouldn't do um so yeah i mean the plot of old boy is a, a a character played by Choi Min Sik called Odesu. He's uh, kidnapped at the beginning of the film and he's incarcerated for fifteen years, uh, only to be let out. And then he goes on a rip roaring rampage of revenge, trying to get the person or persons who did that to him. But what's kind of unveiled is he kind of hammers and slices and stabs his way through goons, trying to get to whoever is behind it all. Is the film really problematizes again? Who is the victim? Who is the antagonist? Who's the protagonist? Um, and yeah, just again, like invites you to sympathize with some fairly difficult characters. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just incredible. The, this is the one again, there's so many standout moments from it when he's eating the live octopus after he's first broke out. Cause he wants to eat something that's alive. Yeah, Cause yeah. he said nothing but dumplings for 15 years. He doesn't know why he's been imprisoned. There's no, Again, it's the whole catharsis thing. There's no catharsis for him throughout the whole movie. Mm. Um, with it, do you think this... So we've had the sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Do you think he's more honed in his sort of vengeance filmmaking director park for this point? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I'll say this, that Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance is my favourite director park movie. And okay, it's my favourite of the Vengeance trilogy, by extension. Um I think what's interesting about Old Boy in particular is that you begin thinking that Odesu is going to be our our hero. You know that this mm-hmm. is a guy who is ostensibly, as far as we can say, wronged. Like he's incarcerated for a reason that we don't know why. He doesn't know why for fifteen years in like one hotel room, essentially. Um, and it's understandable that he wants to find out what's happened. And he, he comes out and he's like this beast and this brute, um, and so he's very. But like he, he is a very difficult to like character as well. Like mm-hmm. I, the opening scene before he's abducted is him in a police station on a drunken disorderly charge, where he's supposed to be at his little girl's birthday party, but he's there just horsing around like a like an idiot in custody. Um, and later on, like he attempts to rape this woman that he meets at a, a sushi restaurant. Um, yeah. He's 
a brutal, loud, thoughtless buffoon, really. Um, and the the antagonist, who's kind of revealed to be the one behind all of this, is um, an old schoolmate of Odesu uh, called Li Wu Jin, who's uh, played by Yuji Tai. Um, and he is like sophisticated and uh, classy and yeah. like seems like softly spoken. But what's revealed about him, about his ca- his conduct, is that he had an incestuous love affair with his sister. And the reason mm-hmm. that he's you know delivered this pain onto Odesu is that Odesu saw Li Wu Jin and his sister uh, in the advanced stages of foreplay. He told everyone at school, and she killed herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that leaves you with a difficult position. Well, well, who is the hero in this film then? Because Li Wu Jin wants vengeance for the death of his sister slash lover. But can I bring myself to side with the guy who was sleeping with his sister? And it just again puts you in like a very morally complex and really, I don't know, it starts a lot of the audience, you know? And, yeah. and I, I like films that last a lot of us. I think that's, that's a, the kind of provocative and challenging cinema that we should be watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very similar in that way to uh, sympathy. Like you have the two characters out, again out for vengeance, and he leaves it up to you to decide. Now, Odesu has it turns out from the ending that he's been hypnotized yeah. to basically the, well, him and he meets a chef at a restaurant, and he says quite. Um, before he gets to know her, he says, I don't know if it would be classed as misogynistic, but he's like, you can't make sushi because your hands are too warm, I think <laughs> yeah, he says. To like they can't make sushi because your hands are too warm. But the chef has also been hypnotised. They've been hypnotised basically to fall in love. And then it turns out that that's his daughter. That's and his, yeah. his, his, the enemy who he's chasing down has hypnotised him. He has basically his sex with his daughter incestuous again um, and it leads to him also pleading basically it comes to a point he opens up a, a box that's been left for him and it shows all the pictures of his daughter and that's yeah. when he realises his daughter's also been sent the same box and he's pleading to not let her open it, he says I'll do everything I'll be your dog yeah, I'll be, yeah. there's, there's maybe not comedic certainly at the end there but um desperation from him Um, and he cuts his own tongue out and this is what we're talking about with the the noise of the the grittiness of the violence in it, you hear those shears going through his tongue, you don't actually see him fully slicing into his tongue you see it getting taken away and the blood pouring out but it's the crunch and the yeah, <laughs> it kind of gives you that that, that noise in your stomach. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that, isn't it? There's a bits earlier on where he's like pulling this guy's teeth out with the uh, sharp end of a hammer, and someone else gets <laughs> yeah. like popped in the ear by a pair of scissors, and it punctures their eardrum and their brain, and it's oof. there's a lot of that kind of stuff in it. Um, but somehow it is less. I mean, yeah. It's kind of still overshadowed. It's less less impactful than like the the kind of moral stuff, you know, like the the fact that Odesu was essentially tricked into sleeping with his own daughter, and not even just tricked with sleeping with her, but like to fall in love with her as well. So he's in that relationship, you know, and that's that's the kicker. Is Li Wu Jin's vengeance isn't ha ha ha? I made you do like a one time sexual encounter without you realizing. The vengeance is you are now actually in love with this person who is your daughter. And yeah, I mean, and that's why the film I think lands so uncomfortably is that it never resolves that either. Like the, the final scene, even after Lee Wujin kills himself, is Odesu trying to get rehypnotized, apparently to forget that 
Mido is his daughter and maybe continue that relationship. It is ambiguous, but it's still like whichever way you cut it, it's pretty unsavory. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and that's where the film leaves you with it. So again, like kind of similar territory uh, to sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and in a way like lady vengeance as well, which asks us to consider the morality about things like torture and killing someone who has killed someone that you love. Um, all these films invite the audience into like really uncomfortable spaces where you have on one hand like a kind of a moral objection to what's happening but you on the other hand you've also got empathy with the people involved in in those those moral conundrums so yeah it's this is a resting film completely startling yeah i was going to ask actually about that final decision that odysseus makes um very good it does seem that he's asked to be rehypnotized by the ones that have hypnotized him um throughout the movie and obviously his daughter doesn't know about no, their no. um kind of parent-child relationship it does seem like he's made the decision just to live the life of a lover with his daughter it appears that way doesn't it i mean mm. yeah yeah i mean the issue i mean there were many issues with it. <laughs> i mean like the key one of the key issues that you could say is that her, her consent is removed because he never talks to her about what's happening like whatever one yeah. thinks about that relationship if they were both aware and they both consented that's one thing the thing is he never has that conversation and actually he actually yeah. avoids her and finding out uh, so i mean but in a way like that's consistent with his character because we know from the minute he turns up that he's a selfish guy like he doesn't think about the impact on her he just thinks about what he wants to do and what's yeah. best and that's you know he doesn't really change <laughs> in that respect yeah. there's no personal growth for odesu uh beyond being confronted with his own beast bestial nature but uh hmm. yeah yeah it's i think Do- director park says that that ending is either a, a happy unhappy ending or an unhappy happy ending and i think that that's a probably a perfect way of describing it mm-hmm. spawn yeah um the last bit I want to kind of go into a wee bit of detail about is the corridor fight scene, which yes. is just incredibly short. The score over the top of it gives it that kind of dramatic. Uh, you're, this is the point you're rooting for Odesu because he has found the people that have wronged him and he's just decided to fuck them up, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, it's been mimicked kind of many a time, none more so than in the kind of recent Netflix Daredevil mm. series. I think was it series one that he has that kind of battle in down a corridor. Yeah, yeah. It's just incredible, brutal. He's not like a... He's a kind of self-trained fighter who's just been punching a wall for 15 years. Yeah. Um, and it kind of shows that he's not someone that's just cutting through these uh, scores of men. He's actually taking a beating himself at the same time. It's just outstanding, isn't it? The tracking shot along the corridor, where everything yeah. else is dark around it. It's, it's just incredible. It is mm. beautiful. Yeah, I mean, Director Park studied aesthetics at university, um, okay. which is the like branch of philosophy to do with beauty. And I think the composition of the corridor fight scene, as you say, is shot from the side in a long tracking shot. Very much feels like a Renaissance painting. You know, a bit like the right, you know okay. the painting of um, the Last Supper, for example, which is this kind of beautifully framed tableau. And that, that's mm. what this corridor fight scene is. So I, I love that there's that juxtaposition between something which feels like very classical um, and beautiful, and then like the violence is just gnarly. Like people are getting hammer blows <laughs> to the head, and you know Odessu gets a knife in the shoulder blade, and it's 
and there's a, there's a real kind of sweaty intensity to it. I think they were, when they were filming it, they just did it again and again and again. And I think I forget how many hours they'd been doing it for, but it was a lot to the point where Choi Min Sik, who was, was like almost dead on his feet at this point, and then they made it do it again. And that, that I think it's one of those latter takes, which is in the film. So like his exhaustion is real. He's just knack because he's been doing that sequence for like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten hours, whatever it was. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and it just feels like like very for for how aesthetically stylized it is. It feels very real as well. Like you compare it to something like um, uh, Gareth uh, Edwards's uh, The Raid movies, the Raid. which mm-hmm. I, I love those films so much. Uh, but they are like full on escapist martial arts movies where you're like, yeah, just yeah, the guys just kicking ass and and smacking each other in the faces with fluorescent tubes and stuff this feels a lot more like oh i could imagine a fight actually unfolding like that like like a, a guy who's maybe like 45 just with a hammer <laughs> just banging people on the head rather than like some cool badass special forces guys you know Aye. it was um he kind of gives a, a hint towards what his style of fighting because he meets a, a group of teenagers i think and i think there's maybe four or five of them mm. and he says i wanted to see if i could i can't remember say i wanted yeah. to see if i could hold my own or if i could beat them yeah, yeah. I, turns out i could and then it leads in again leads into this there's slight elements of comedy in it like like you're saying obviously he's absolutely knackered from the amount of shoots he's been doing the amount of takes he's been doing sorry um and there's, there's points where him and the, uh, his victims, if you want to call them that, are also just, they're just leaning against the wall. They're so yeah, drained. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it is quite comical watching it from that way, where they're just taking a breather before they go back to beating the shit out of each other. Yeah. Um, and then he's got through the hallway. They're all in bits and limping away, and there's moans and cries, and the lift opens again, and he just smiles, yeah. and it cuts to them all just falling out the lift yeah it was, it was fantastic there's a real uh, dark uh comic comedic tone throughout the whole film really you know mm. um yeah like there's the the scene where he's being held captive in the hotel room slash prison towards the beginning and he the he's doing that kind of grotesque smile um and that's a smile which is kind of like, it's very sad but it's kind of funny um and then that's the smile he does again at the end of the film as well um so yeah, they're really it's it's a very peculiar film that plays the genre in a really interesting way, but it, it's kind of one of a kind, and it, it's yeah, I think it, it's probably that weird heady cocktail of elements which has ensured its impact and its longevity into the you know the canon of of genre film. Mm-hmm. It was superb, and I think I would recommend all three of these movies to watch. But for me, Old Boy is the one. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I think it's maybe also a good introduction to his style as well. Yeah, like if you can get past the brutality of it and the quite um, disturbing kind of sexual themes that you find out later on, it's, you find them out at the end. So you, when you're looking back on them, you're kind of like, "Well, that makes that a wee bit worse." Yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I would just say it's just incredible. Just everyone needs to see this film, especially if you have even a passing interest in. Asian cinema. Yeah, it's incredible. It's essential. Um, hmm. um, so just more general about Director Park. Um, I have not seen Lady Vengeance, mm-hmm. but that's now on my list because I want to see the, the kind of third part of this Vengeance trilogy. Yeah. 
Is there others of his that you would recommend as well as these three? Yeah, so I mean, Lady Vengeance is fantastic. Um, he did like a really offbeat comedy called I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay, um, okay. which is, uh, was I think it was just after Lady Lady Vengeance. Um, um, and th- that for me is, it's, it's very sweet. Uh, it kind of reminds me a bit of like, if you imagine Amelie, versus um one flew over the cuckoo's nest it's that kind of vibe okay. so it's kind of like it's, it's less violent than a lot of his other films uh but yeah um thirst is pretty good stoker which is one of his american films is pretty good um mm. the handmaiden of course uh which you know had a little a degree of breakout success where um it was you know an awards contender um yeah and he's got a new film on its way um decision to leave which is okay. getting i think it played at Cannes this year and so hopefully we'll gonna we're gonna get that in in due course but i mean basically you won't go too wrong wherever wherever you go for me like the his best stuff is at the beginning of this this run from jsa sympathy for mr vengeance old boy lady vengeance and i'm a cyborg for me those are all like absolute bangers yeah. Um, but even even like th- thirst, which is maybe slightly less good, is still really good, you know. So yeah, yeah. good stuff. And how is he kind of? Um, how is he thought of in terms of Asian cinema? Is he the kind of now we've got Bong Joon Ho, obviously mm-hmm. we've mentioned Takashi Miki as well. Um, is he one of these? Maybe not. It's Godfather's of Asian cinema, maybe like one of these big tentpole directors to hold up. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he is, um, mm-hmm. and I feel like him and Bong Joon Ho as as South Korean filmmakers for me feel like they're kind of two peas in a pod a little bit. Like Bong okay. Bong Joon Ho, I think, is got a slightly more offbeat or um, less violent sensibility on the whole. Um, but you see, like talent that they've worked with be in both of their films, like um, Song Kang Ho, who we've mentioned a couple of times today. Of course, it was in Parasite, a Bong Joon-ho film, but also Memories of Murder, which is a Bong Joon-ho film, which is absolutely brilliant. And there's some great photographs that you can find online of um, when Memories of Murder was being filmed, uh, Song Kang-ho popping onto set of Old Boy to see his friend Choi Min-sik. You know, so I, I love that these guys all kind of came up together and they're all making really interesting films at the same time. Uh, obviously, Bong Joon-ho achieved Oscar success uh, with Parasite. So whatever we think of the Oscars, it perhaps indicates that he's had a little bit more mainstream success than Park, uh, director Park. Um, but I mean, at the moment, like I think South Korean cinema is getting like really interesting recognition. You know, uh, Parasite was still in here a few years ago. Uh, Squid Game as a South Korean uh, TV show on Netflix yeah. did incredibly well. Like uh, it was at the time, I think the most streamed show on Netflix. Um, yeah. It's been overtaken since, I think, by... Uh, a couple of other things but you know really really uh capture the public imagination so um, i i feel like director park could still have a bigger breakout success than he's had so far but yeah we, we'll see we'll see he said he's, he's worked obviously on stoker and that had um a uh, mia mia goff is it no mia alice in wonderland um Mia Wazakowski. Mia Wazakowski, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, was in that as well. So he's had that kind of attempt at maybe a more 
breakout Western style and Bong Joon Ho's had Snowpiercer as well, yeah. the, which was a kind of really delayed release, I think, wasn't it? That was quite held back for a bit. Yeah. Um yeah. but I think they're more as you're saying, their more interesting work is working in Asian cinema. Because it certainly feels like they get given a lot more freedom than what they would if they're working for studios over this side of the pond, this side of the pond, this side of the world. Yeah, I mean that that's it, isn't it? And like I I think Stoker's okay, but like same thing with Bong Joon Ho. Like I think Snowpierce is alright, Okja's okay, but like I, I prefer his stuff that's in Korean, you know. So yeah. um and you know, it's great if those guys are getting the opportunities to, to make English language pictures, but I don't think they need to do that to be accepted or celebrated. I think cinema is available enough now through Blu-ray labels or imports or streaming services that you can go out and watch these films now um and relatively cheaply as well and so i would say you know just just get stuck in and if you can read the subtitles if you can't get a dubbed version on and yeah just it's just incredible incredible work from that period from these guys available and it's an absolute absolute dream good stuff so that wraps up a Park Chan book took a blank there (laughs) (laughs) um so before we go into the last part, where can people find your work? Where can people find your podcast and things like that, and Twitter and all the socials? Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, so if you want to listen to the podcast, just download it from wherever you got this podcast from. It's Moving Pictures Film Club. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Fats Coleman, F-A-T-S-C-O-L-E-M-A-N, or Moving, Pic- uh, Moving Pictures is on there as well, at Moving Pics Club. Brilliant. So... I just want to say thank you very much for joining me. It's been a, a great chat. As I said, opens me up to a bit more of Director Park's work and I'm definitely going to check out more. Um, for the last bit, I'd like the guests to just sign us out on a piece of music or a score or a song from a, a, a soundtrack to a movie. It can be any movie at all. Uh, so I'm going to go for the main song from my favourite film of all time, which is Magnolia by Paul Thomas Anderson. So the song is One by Amy Mann. Excellent. Tim, thanks very much. And this is One by Amy Mann. Okay, Mr. Mix. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do Two can be as bad as one It's the loneliest number since the number one No is the saddest experience you'll ever know Yes, it's the saddest experience you'll ever know Because one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do One is the loneliest number that you'll ever know Because one is the loneliest number 
that you'll ever do One is the loneliest number that you'll ever know 